Welcome back, Intimates. I'm excited to find you experts to talk about love, connection, non-monogamy, polyamory, relationship anarchy, group sex, kink, commitment, and lots of other intimacy and relationship topics. Let's live our best lives together by unlearning stigma and getting clear on what we really want. Don't know what to ask for? I have loads of ideas for you. Of course, none of this would be possible without the support of my amazing Patreon supporters or my current hosts, the Musqueam First Nation on whose unceded lands this podcast was made and this human was born. If you want to support more intimate interactions, you can say thank you by supporting us on Patreon for as little as $1 a month. Patreon supporters also get every episode of the podcast ad-free with short intros and outros. I know funds are not an option for some of you lovely humans, but don't fret, there are other ways you can help out. You can help make more intimate interactions by just telling someone you listen to this podcast. Or if you're feeling especially generous, you can share a link to an episode you like and discuss it with a friend or partner, or even leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting site. Help other humans interested in more intimacy and better relationships find us. If you have your own podcast, shout us out. Need a podcast guest? Email offers to podcast at victorsalmon.com. I love talking about relationships and intimacy, and I love cross-promotion and working with other podcasters. Okay, let's hear about today's episode. My soon-to-be 70-year-old father visited from India recently and had a couple of trans-ischemic attacks while he was here. They're like mini miniature strokes, basically. He's been sick for about four weeks since he got here and was sick before he came, so I felt a sense of urgency to get to know him better, to document for my nieces, and to ask what questions I had. I figured it would be interesting to talk about parenting, and my father speaks well and often chooses to highlight, you know, predominantly the positives, which could be seen as editorializing the past, which is to say exactly what I'm doing now by offering you a foreword, or alternatively, choosing to see only the positives. While some might argue parents who maybe have made some mistakes, which is all of them, um, let's be honest, and focus only on the positives are avoiding accountability, but I haven't gotten that sense from him at all, and I choose to believe he's trying to illustrate the importance of focusing on positives and how, if we choose to focus on positives, it can make sure that we remember what's important. I've recently been trying hard to notice positives in my life more and have been finding the effects, if nothing else, relieving. The world feels a little less dark. I feel more hopeful. Of course, I'm also medicated, and that's definitely played a role as well in increasing my satisfaction in life. And it's not all about only seeing the positives. I lean into negatives and express the bad and feel what I feel and express when I'm hurting. However, it's easy as a depressive to only do those last ones. It's much harder as a depressive to notice the color of leaves changing during the change of seasons and smile at fresh snow falling. Like those types of small noticings or awarenesses throughout your day can really help make life feel like it's worth living, at least for me as a depressive. That's just my personal experience. Also, fun fact, this was recorded on Friday the 13th, which was also my father's mother's birthday, so my paternal grandmother. Anyways, let's get to the session. I'm so glad. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad. What are you glad about? Your mic working finally. Yeah. Guess it's important to take joy in the little things. It's something I've been working on. Um, actually, I think it's something I've been fairly successful in since I went on medication. Just taking more joy in the little things and sort of celebrating them. <coughs> <coughs> Is your tea going to be good enough? 
Yeah, maybe I should take a little drink and wet me whistle. Mm-hmm. That's a bit better. Well, I will welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. Um, I'm sitting here with my father, David Salmon, and we're talking about parenting, which is a great topic to talk with one's parent about. Well, it's great for you. I don't know. <laughs> Being on this end of the conversation, I'm not sure. Let's see. I suppose that's the hot seat. Yeah. Well, I'll do my best not to not to judge you or, you know, put you on 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 sort of any that, spot or pressure. Well, that's appreciated. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that having been said, um, what's your first what's your first sort of memory of being a parent? Like when did you first sort of know you were a parent and, and how did that feel for you? Did stuff like shift or that's a rather obvious question. Mm. When Maitre was born, mm-hmm. I became a parent. Mm-hmm. And I was literally, it was in India, of course. She was born in India. Mm-hmm. And I remember her coming out of your mother, crawling up her tummy to her breast. And after a while, the midwife said to me, do you want to cut the cord? I said, sure. So I cut the cord. And then she said, I have to deal with the afterbirth can you take the baby for a bit and give her a bath and I had a bath out there you didn't have to worry about temperature because the outdoor temperature was basically body temperature it was about 37 38 right and so I can remember sort of taking her in my hands they can't see my gestures but yeah I put yeah. my hands out and yep. I put the baby my tray mm-hmm. into this water and of course she'd just come out of a fluid environment so she was right. happy to go back into one made mm-hmm. her very comfortable and though some scientists say they can't see when they're tiny, mm. she looked me straight in the eyes. Mm. I swear she looked me straight in the eyes and started to laugh. That's great. Yeah. I mean, her little laugh was just, <laughs> it was like, I don't know. It was like from another lifetime, I told you I was going to come back or something like that. And she just sort of looked me straight in the eyes and started to laugh. Here I am. Like a sort of, I know something you don't almost or. Yeah. Yeah. It was that sort of exactly that something that you couldn't quite put your finger on. And she was laughing at and looking at you. And it was like, Hmm. this one's going to be special. That's a great sentiment to have. Hmm. So, but that's when I first knew I was a parent. I mean, like I said, it's an obvious answer because that was my first child. Right. And how did how did that shift things for you in your identity as a person going from being like a man or a husband to being a parent? It was about a hundred percent or a hundred eighty percent turn. I don't know. It was a complete change. Yeah. How all can... of a, all of a sudden, your purpose in life is something other than yourself. Mm. I mean, so... up to that point, you're moving ahead yourself, and at that point, where you're going doesn't really matter anymore. Now you have something else to take care of and deal with and. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, it's a very, very critical change mm-hmm. and a very rewarding one, I think. Has it been rewarding for you being a parent? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like in the last podcast, we talked about the the ability or not, it's not a ability so much as the necessity to be able to love without expecting anything in return because mm-hmm. babies can't give you anything back mm-hmm. except a little look in the eyes and a giggle. <laughs> but yeah, no. Yeah, it was great. It was Parents a... assure me that's enough. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a parent, so for me, it's 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 more challenging to wrap my head around. But every parent I talk to says, you know, it doesn't make sense from the outside, but it's worth it. 
Oh, okay. I will take their word for it. I think it depends on you. Mm. And it depends when you're ready. A lot of people are forced into parenting much too young mm-hmm. when they're not really ready. And often by their, their own parents. Mm. Many, many cultures in this world, especially in India, a lot. Which, but just not unique to India. There are many mm-hmm. other cultures as well. Mm-hmm. Just as soon as they can, they get their children married. And as soon as they're married, they better have a child. Yeah. And that's unfair because not everybody's ready right away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what was your first child like, Maitre? Or I should say Oro Maitre because I guess she that's was named after. That's her proper name, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, she was born in Oroville. Maitre. My tray was this little bundle of energy, always running around and moving, never wanted to sleep. You couldn't get her to sleep for love nor money. I mean, I used to carry her around in the moonlight on my shoulder in that lovely, warm Indian night. And uh, <coughs> she would, uh, I'd chant mantras, and she would lay on my shoulder and close her eyes and fall into a little sleep and I'd take her back slowly back to the room try to lay her down as soon as her back touched the bed pop open the eyes like you gotta be kidding me you're not putting me down (laughs) so it was like yeah over and over until finally you could sort of get her to sleep she did not want to sleep she wanted to be awake and alive and doing stuff all the time that does sound like my sister yeah and she was kind of up until she became a parent. I think that changed yeah. when she became a parent. <laughs> well, that's the other end of the stick, isn't it? But uh, <laughs> When all you want to do is be asleep. She was so innocent in a way. She, she wouldn't keep her clothes on, which is something my mother said I did as well. I'd go out with my dog, pull all my clothes off, and go walking with my dog, and the cops would bring me back. How old were you? Two. Oh, with your dog? Yep. Wow. Two, three, like as soon as I could walk. And your sister was precocious. She was walking at seven months. I mean, 10, 11 months is more like it or even later, but seven Mm. months was crazy. Just really wanted to be walking. Yeah, at 11 months, we lost her. And the village Amma found her, oh, a good kilometer away. Wow. At 11 months and just put her finger out and she picked it up. Maitre grabbed her finger and uh, she just she knew where she'd seen this child on her way to going to the market, no? Mm. So she brought her back all the way home, and we were frantically searching everywhere. And this woman comes along and says, "This is yours," <laughs> in Tamil, no? And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it was ours. And <laughs> it's so typical of my tree. Like she just precocious. She was off doing something, and mm-hmm. I remember her calling me one day and saying. Pambu, Pambu, which is Tumble from Snake. snake. Yeah, yeah, and she took me out. I think I've told you this one probably. but No, you tell it again. It's good. But, yeah, she took me out and showed me a, a huge old Russell's Viper, as big around as my forearm. <laughs> and not long. They don't grow very long. They're short, stubby, but powerful snakes with a, a head the size of your fist. I mean, a really big head. <clears throat> and if they hiss, it sounds like a cat, like it's a really big hiss. Got you. And they're extremely dangerous, much more, much more um, lethal. venomous, lethal ah, and venomous than a cobra, for example. Mm. And she walked me right up to this big old snake, and she said, see? And I said, 
you didn't touch them, did you? And she says, no, 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 I wouldn't bother them. You told me don't touch them. I says, that's right. I said, what did you say to him? She said, I, I just said I won't hurt you, which is what we'd taught her to say. And this snake just looked at us like, because I, I had said when I walked up to it, I said the same thing, which I always said, took the name of the mother and then said, I won't hurt you. And it never coiled. You know, most these vipers, like rattlesnake type mm. vipers, they'll coil into a, a coil and, and be ready to extend themselves and attack you. This thing just, <laughs> just looks so bored looking at us like, this is your kid, like, take him away, you know. What are you bothering me for? But, yeah, no, she didn't didn't have the slightest fear of that snake. And the snake knew it and knew she wouldn't touch it, and it had absolutely no fear of either of us. Hmm. And it just moseyed away along through the garden, and I said, let it go, let it go. So she sort of waved to it bye-bye, like a, she was, what, maybe... 18 months, a year. She's talking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Not just one word, two words, like, but she mm. knew the word for snake. Like daddy, daddy, Pombu. Makes sense, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's good she knew the word and knew what a snake looked like. No, I knew Pombu meant snake because uh, that's what I named my corn snake. <laughs> my pet yeah. corn snake was Pombu. Yeah, really? Okay. Although, very quickly, he colloquially became Snakey McSnakerson because that's what my partner referred <laughs> to him as. Uh, Mark had the exact same, exact same look on his face. Like, what are you, what are you, five? Like, on <laughs> a snakey McSnakerson? But I thought it was cute and fun. Yeah, uh, fair but, enough. But Pombu was the given name for that snake, the you okay. know, formal name, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, Maitre was, had mm -hmm. a sort of innocence and a lot like me when I said in the last podcast how I could do stupid things like draw the line <laughs> all the way up to school, right sure, back to sure. my desk. She was living in this world of awe and awareness and you know it was like she had no idea that a snake could be dangerous because I told her it wouldn't hurt her if she if if she didn't threaten it in any way mm -hmm. she said she wouldn't hurt it it would never hurt her mm -hmm. she believed it absolutely and it was true it made it true mm. but it's that ability to believe that if you don't and if you will not harm the snake and it can tell when you're truly sincere it won't harm, harm you mm-hmm and yeah, she had that ability. She charmed everybody. All her neighbors, everybody was just charmed by her. Mm -hmm. But she was a handful, lots of energy and always going. Yeah, I'm sure lots of children are like that. And then Mark came along and he was mm. so quiet and calm and mm -hmm. just the opposite. That's right. That's... In some ways, I mean, maybe the opposite's not the right word, but... Lower energy. Yeah. Well, not the physical act of energy. His energy was inside. He was had a very sweet, good calmness, like a goodness in him. Mm -hmm. It's something I don't know. It might embarrass him if I told him now, but <coughs> I always thought this one's going to grow up to be a saint or a really good person because he had a goodness in his heart, a real goodness that hard thing to explain but you could I'm, feel it as his as his younger brother he he always seemed to be really kind to me even in times <laughs> where i wouldn't have expected an older brother to be kind or where he really didn't need to be kind he you know he would spend his own personal money buying me treats and stuff down at the corner store and we would go and get candies and snacks and stuff he would always pay for me it was always a generous um he was always generous and giving 
I mean, at the time, it didn't always feel that way. I mean, when he was buying me sugar, absolutely, it felt amazing. My brother's the best. And then we would play some video games, and, you know, he would beat me a couple of times. And boy, did I not take that well as a, as a six-year-old. But <laughs> You're answering my question about you now. Right. Because I've gone through the first two, and you're the third, but you've sort of answered, which is good. Mm. That's great. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm curious what your experience of me was when I was when I was younger as well. But I mean, I guess there's there's it's kind of a loaded question because there's no way for you to answer negatively. <laughs> you kind of are forced to answer positively. Well, you were competitive, as you said. That's true. You know, with yeah. your brother, especially. Mm-hmm. And but you're very f- fearless to the point of crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you remember leaping off the back of that couch and trying to clear the coffee table. I do. And, and you didn't quite. I don't remember, I don't remember that specific stunt, but oh, I do yeah. have the scar from it. Yeah, no, you you went across the top of that coffee table and didn't quite clear, like Evil Knievel, not quite <laughs> getting enough speed behind him when he was trying to cross the canyon or something. Mm-hmm. And you clipped that thing so hard and went smuck on your face on the and screamed. Stone fireplace. Yeah, and screamed and screamed, and I rushed you off to the hospital. I think I do vaguely remember tucking. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. think I I tuck, got just tuck and a, roll but missed the coffee table. Well, there's there's just no way to avoid the fireplace by tucking. Yeah. Yeah. Um but you know, I was like what, 7, 8? Can't remember. If that. Yeah, I was if really that. young. You were younger than that. I was really Probably young. Probably 5. I definitely still have the scar under my eye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I went to the hospital with you and the doctor sort of looked at me like what have you done to this child, you know? <laughs> right. And so I had to explain what you'd done, and he gave me that, oh, yeah, really? You know, <laughs> questioning look like, you think I'm stupid? <laughs> and I said, no, no, really, he did. That's what that, He really did. Ask him. That's what he did. And, and of course, he, it's right on my eye, too. Yeah, and then and then what do you do? But a month or two later, you take your Fisher-Price tricycle and go down the full flight of stairs slam your head into the door that was at the end of the stairs (laughs) i mean you make it sound like it was deliberate in fairness to me my cornering sprinting down the stairs or going down on my ass was quite good i just hadn't done the physics and the calculations the kinematics i hadn't done as a six seven year old i hadn't figured out that the weight of the tricycle if i tried to hold it under me as i went around the banister would probably anchor me and i would lose my grip on the banister which is what happened then i went face first into the solid wooden door at full speed and then i took you to the hospital and the same damn doctor was on (laughs) yeah he was on shift less less funny he looked at me again and he started to ask me pointed questions about beating my child. Wow. Oh, yeah. No, it was two times in a row, and you're covered in bruises this time. Like, really, like someone hit you on the head hard. He rode his tricycle down the stairs into the yeah. solid wood door. And the guy gave me that look again, like, he rode his tricycle <laughs> down the stairs. Oh, yeah. Sure he did. Like, right, what kid does that? Exactly. I hadn't and, met me. No. And I was like... <laughs> I don't know. This kid's going to be the end of me. I'll be in jail by the time time he makes six or seven years old. Yeah, which is significantly less funny from your perspective at that time when you're sweating. Well, it, it was funny, but I was sweating at the same time because this guy was getting serious about it. Yeah, because it had happened twice. Yeah, and I'm saying, really, I I didn't I didn't touch him. <laughs> Believe me. 
And I think in the end, he sort of believed me. But if I'd have gotten in a third time quickly, that would have been it, I think. <laughs> I'd have been answering questions in the police station. Mm, I think the... Um... I think the tricycle ride, I, I realized that I might need to do more math before attempting such stunts. We were a bit young for math. but I definitely had figured out that maybe my grasp of physics wasn't what I thought it was. Yeah, yeah well, we'll leave that alone. <laughs> I mean, I went on to do well in physics later. I just As a six-year-old, seven-year-old, you know, wasn't quite there yet. So, no, so yeah, you were fearless in an almost frightening way at that point. Yeah, I can see how that would be frightening as a parent. Yeah. And you were, you had something for animals and birds. I mean, you were very, very sympathetic, kind towards animals and birds. You had your bunny for a while and... Oh, that's right. And dogs and cats and then your hamsters later on. And of course, going to the bird sanctuary to rifle and letting the chickadees pick seeds out of your hand just made you so happy that's true i do really still enjoy going to rifle and feeding chickadees and other birds geese i mean most people hate geese but geese are surprisingly gentle when you're giving them food they don't bite the proverbial hand that feeds it all which is nice they can they can really really peck hard at the food in your hand if you're not careful oh i suppose so i've never had a problem with it i've always found them more gentle than mallards Hmm. regular ducks are rougher with my hand than i think geese are and cranes are also surprisingly gentle, even though they have very sharp pointed beaks. They'll actually but carefully they'll pick, pick the, out. Yeah, they are really good. They'll spear corn and like other high calorie foods out of. Anyways, this isn't a podcast on feeding birds, but it is what I was like as a child and as an adult. Yeah, sure. man, you're, yeah, you still have a lot of those qualities. I hope you don't mm-hmm. go down staircases like that, though. Yeah, that's probably ill-advised. Um, no, I do not ride tricycles downstairs anymore. That's that's a good thing. I feel like as as a person with a very small fledgling following, it might be a good way to get more people to follow my podcast, but I feel like it would be yeah. the last podcast I would ever release. The YouTube of you going down the stairs and wiping out in the door, yeah, not a good thing. Yeah, I mean, if you just had a phone at that time, I would have had my 15 minutes of fame right then and there and be done with it. About as smart as the guy with the <laughs> telephone book and, the, and his girlfriend shooting him. A telephone book? Yeah, he held a telephone book in front of his chest and she shot him and it went right through the telephone book. That's almost hard to believe. Books are, I think that's a really good strategy if you're about to get shot. Like, Well, no, this was a setup. He was going to show how he could do it on YouTube. Oh. Ended up in the hospital. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, but a telephone book is a really good strategy because all the paper so close together is actually quite dense and quite difficult to go through. Evidently not quite enough. Yeah, you'd want to really do your math. But you realize I'm. this was sort of the Darwinian thing where <laughs> you'd make these sort of calls and you end up sure. dead, dead if you're not careful. I mean, I do tests using other copies with the same gun, the same bullets, the same yeah, you know, well, distances. I'm and... talking about going down the stairs again. I'm much more cautious now than I was then, for sure. Good. Glad <laughs> to hear it. <laughs> um, so what do you think the role of a parent is? for a child like if you had to think of advice to give to annie or shiva like your granddaughters or to maitre or any of us really or any of my other grandchildren i don't know about yet <laughs> right any of your children for example potentially yeah or potentially. any of marks yeah mark might have children that, that's a very real possibility well in the future, you might so. have children too who knows i suppose that is theoretically a possibility yeah i feel like it's more of a certain, i think okay. i feel like it's more of a certainty for mark than it is for me 
Oh, I doubt if it's a certainty for anyone, but that's we'll, true. we'll see. That's true. We'll that's see him. I don't think Maitre's going to have any more. At least she isn't planning on it, I don't think. <laughs> well, we all know how that goes, but yeah. but yeah, I mean, hopefully she has a... But I think parenting, quiet. as we, we discussed before, is physical at first. Mm-hmm. I mean, you love those little balls of joy, those tiny little baby, you know. That's true. But you have to take care. You have to make sure they get the proper nutrition, they get enough liquid water and stuff to be hydrated mm-hmm. got to make sure they're clean because they're shitting themselves all the time that's true uh, oh babies yeah and they have to feed and it's it's really physical and trying because it keeps you up most of the nights mm-hmm. i remember i'd be in bed and uh my trade start wailing away because she was either gas or whatever mm-hmm. And I'd always get up. Your mom would say, oh, do I have to get up? And I'd say, no, no, I'll go. Because for me, it was a privilege. Hmm. And so I never worried. I always went. And it didn't matter whether I hadn't spoiled my sleep or not. It didn't matter at all. It was like this was the one chance I got to do something without reward. Just pure, altruistic, take care of a child, a baby. And it was it was beautiful. I remember in the middle of the night, tired, whatever, picking her up, burping her, and getting her back to bed, and thinking, "That was great. That was really something." Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, some people really do. They really take to that having something more important than themselves that they get mm-hmm. to be part of. And I loved sleep when I got back to bed, but <laughs> <laughs> I loved the chance to do that too. And your mother loved the fact that I did. That's great. Because she didn't have to get up, and she was busy all day anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she was taking care of kids during the day, I guess. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's certainly a big responsibility. And I don't mean to say if Maitre does have kids after Harry's and Shiva that they weren't wonderful. And um, there's something about children that may be a surprise if you're not planning on having children that in no way takes away from the value and, and love and joy you feel with them. Mm-hmm. I, I, again, this is just what people have told me, and, and it's consistent too. I've I haven't run into a parent that's had a surprise child that has had negative things to say about them. I don't know whether that's because yeah. it's socially unacceptable to voice those thoughts, or whether you know yeah. parents just have this innate built-in love for their children. Yeah, mm. that damn useless condom. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, they work that out in the nine months before the child gets there. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you're probably right, but. Mm. In my case, I'm quite happy with all my children. Mm, that's good. Always good to have that uh, five-star review on, you know, Google. <laughs> I'm happy with my children. Yeah, no, I am. So So, what do you think the role of a parent is in a child's life? Okay, well, the first part is the physical. Like I was saying, you've got to sure. do all the things to keep them alive. and right. just, Because they can't keep themselves alive. Right. And then after that, it's just love, guidance. But I think love is really important. I mean, they have to, when you guide them, it has to be, I don't know, it has to be, but it is in your voice if you feel it. If you feel it in your heart, it'll come through your voice. And I think mm-hmm. infants, tiny children, they suss that right away. They know that feeling in, in your voice. And that's important, really important. And the physical contact. Mm-hmm. Having having babies and toddlers near you? 
yeah, having the ability just to hold them, carry them around. When they're tiny, it's easier to carry them around. When they get bigger, it's just a matter of a hug now and then mm-hmm. letting them know that you're glad they're there. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Feeling, I think all human beings kind of need that feeling of connectedness or being wanted, that sense of you're you're part of a family like that. That's big. And I think also sharing good times, sharing happiness when mm. you can, like like when we used to go to the beach and stuff, we were talking about it the other day, but mm. to have, to create situations where as a unit, the group together of the children and the parents can have fun and have a good time. Your mother didn't always participate in those things, but mm-hmm. we still had some really good times together as a group. And I think that's, it's an important memory to have. It's it's funny. I don't actually remember. I vaguely remember going to the beach maybe once as a kid, but like most of my positive memories are things like, um, um, like we said, um, listening to you read me the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. That was that was one of the highest. And then going to the bird sanctuary and feeding birds. Yeah, was, you was were a high smaller when we used to go to the beach. I think mm. we used to go down to Centennial. Mm. And uh, Mark, I Mark would have been ten, so that would have put you at around four. four. Yeah. So, yeah, you didn't, I probably carried you in the water sometimes, but Mm. you couldn't really go on your own in the water yet. Mm. Whereas the other two are running and throwing balls back and forth and having good times. That's great. Yeah, for me, it was mostly the, uh, I would say the bird sanctuary was probably the highest followed. Well, I don't know. That one competes with Lord of the Rings. It was, it was pretty good being read too. Very different experiences. It's focus time. There's a lot of focus time in having a parent <clears throat> read to you, which is a huge privilege I have, having had all that time. Oh, and it was a privilege for me mm. that someone actually listened, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, it was a shared experience. Like we went, I enjoyed doing it, and you guys enjoyed listening to it, or mm-hmm. or you alone it went later. But yeah, no, it was yeah a shared, again, something shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about meaning that's created when you when you share something. It's like the experience doesn't just get lost to the annals of time. It doesn't just fade in your memory. It it's really alive in that relationship. Yeah, and there's and this you'd never lose those memories. I, well, maybe mm. maybe eventually I'll. <laughs> no, as I, mean, I get older, you'll hear me going gaga goo goo, and I'm not quite there anymore. But so far, I haven't forgotten any of those things. And yeah, they're, they're important memories to me. Yeah, and the emotional intensity helps anchor them in your in your awareness too. Mm-hmm. They tend to stick around a lot longer when there is that emotional potency of someone you love. Yeah, for sure. Mm. How stressed were you about having to parent perfectly and get things right? I was mostly stressed about financially mm. having the ability to raise you. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can remember looking in... Mark's eyes and saying, I just can't afford the equipment to let you play hockey. We just, I just didn't have the money. I couldn't right. make any more than I was making. And I felt horrible because I could see his friends were going and he couldn't. Mm. That really ate me up for a while. I mean, and the worst thing was, is that about six or eight months later, somehow your mom met someone who had equipment for my tray and Maitre started Got ringette. Got to play ringette. Yeah, it was all used equipment, but someone who was exactly her size That's had very stopped. lucky. Yeah, and here's Mark thinking, 
I couldn't get any equipment. I right. couldn't play hockey, and there's my trade playing. And then when I was older and wanted to play hockey, never... we had a little more money. Yeah, yeah. But I never once heard Mark complain and say it's wow. not it's not fair that she's playing ringette because I didn't get. Never once heard a word out of him negative. Huh. He was happy that she was playing. I'm sure. Yeah, he's always been really like he's always celebrated people's wins. Like he's not an inherently jealous person nope. by nature. No. Nope. That's really that's, a gift. That's all part of that goodness I saw when he was mm-hmm. when he was really young. Mm-hmm. He had that he had that quality, but he still does. He's generous. Mm-hmm. He's kind. He's definitely generous. He always has been, mm-hmm. regardless of how much money he's had. Even when it was just buying me, you know, um, what are they called? The gummy sodas. I still <laughs> remember those from when I was a kid. And yeah. the fuzzy peaches. Yeah. Sour sour keys. Those were delicious, and I was so happy to share those with Mark. You know, honestly, that's got to be one of the highlights of my childhood as well. Yeah, down at Ming's Corner Restaurant. That's that's right, uh, back when he had the corner, corner grocery, store. Yeah, yeah, and then later he built the restaurant and built his house on top of that. And Yep. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Yeah, a few years. I still remember helping Maitre dye her hair as well. <laughs> yeah, my eld- the eldest, my sister, because I'm the baby of the family, the youngest, so... There you go. Yeah, I used to, she would have a cap on to do highlights, like streaks. And then I would use this hook to reach in through the cap and help pull her hair through all the things so that she could do these home box kits. Oh, my God. Because she didn't have the money to go and get them done at like a salon, like probably her friends were doing or something. Hmm. So she did it all at home, pretty much by herself. And then occasionally it was just really hard to make it look decent to get <laughs> even even amounts of hair through all the ones at the back. And so she just told me what she needed and showed me what it looked like. And I used to do it for her. And it was very That's it cool. was good. I never knew any of that. One time we had this this really big fight while we were talking and I refused to finish. Oh, no. And she tried it on her own for probably about 15 minutes. And then stormed into my room like, you get back down there. <laughs> you finish this. And I could just see from how upset she was that, like, one, I didn't have a choice. And two, I'd probably taken the fight too far. Yeah. And that I don't think she knew that a potential consequence was that I was just going to be like, well, screw you. I'm not finishing then. That was kind of cruel of you. Well, I was young, too. Like, I would have been, again, yeah. like six but or can seven. Can you imagine like, really the emotional... Young. Oh yeah, situation for, for a very she young, would have been thirteen. Yeah, if I were and seven. if her hair were really messed up and she had to go to school, can oh, you yeah. imagine? Hands down. Yeah, looking oh, back, I'm like I couldn't have conceptualized that at six or seven. No, but no, but from her point of view, oh yeah, I could see her being, being a little that upset. upset. And and I think even then I knew that I'd kind of screwed up because I didn't understand why she was so upset. Mm. But now looking back, I can't believe that I like just with how important that was. But, you know, mm. those those fights seem so insignificant as an adult. At the time, they felt so emotionally intense and important about yeah. things you don't even remember. But, uh, yeah, apparently they weren't important enough because I did go down and I did finish. Um, we didn't really talk. <laughs> I finished. I, and she said, thank you, in a very terse sort of way. Um, yeah, well, so, I, can, I can hear that, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she has a way of being quite terse at times. And well, and as anyone does. And then when I mentioned it with her recently, she like only the most vague recollection of that even happening. So it's like good that it's not something she's held on to. Yeah, that is good. That's an interesting story. I didn't know that one. Mm -hmm. Sibling rivalry. I'm curious if you notice a lot of sibling rivalry at all. 
Not a lot. No, as I said with Mark, he was so generous that he never showed jealousy for the toward either of you for the mm -hmm. good fortunes that you had. Mm. Maitre was similar. I mean, being the only girl and being the eldest, she didn't really have a lot of rivalry from you two. Mm -hmm. And you and Mark, yeah, there was definitely a certain rivalry there, but that mm -hmm. was mostly of your doing. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. No, and that was just young young personality that had been quite spoiled by your mother. Well, I mean, it is what it is, but I would, I would, <laughs> I would certainly say that Mark was a little bit older and just that much better. He was five years. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, so it's he like, was bound to be better, but you just didn't want to accept that. I really didn't. As a brother, it was very hard to just accept that he wasn't just a little better than me at things. Like he was so much better than me and not just at like little things obviously physical development he's going to be able to play sports and things yeah, he's yeah. like when i was 12 he was 17 he was going off to play university college the, football the problem was is you you had trouble accepting it i that's true no that's actually a really good point the the only problem in my relationship with mark growing up was really that i had trouble accepting that he would beat me at things well he was that much older yeah i just had such a intense lack of self-esteem and self-worth and and such an intense um, such an intense centering on outcome, which I've always attributed to things like marks in school being very highly prized. Like it was the outcome that was, that was really seen as a, mm. almost a key performance indicator is what they would call it today. Like a, a, a sign that I was, I was doing it right. So there were grades and then, yeah, there were, there were always these like numeric ways of evaluating me. Even if it was like doing a paper route, it was like, well, you have 70 houses. And, and also my mind kind of lent itself to that numerical analysis too. And I was just sort of in a lot of situations where I felt evaluated, um, which makes sense because everyone is mm. when you're a kid, you're always evaluated. You go to school, you do tests. It just, it's a thing. Um, but it was, it was a lot of, it was a lot of pressure feeling like, like those tests defined me in some sort of a way or that there was no arguing with a bad test result. Like if numerically you got assigned a grade, there is this assumption in me that it must be a fair grade or that it was representative of something meaningful. Well, your, your typing was pretty good. <laughs> Do you remember? I still type fairly well. Yeah. No, um, but I mean, I, it's funny. You blew I, your teacher away. You typed so fast. I mean, that's because I spent my entire life pretty much in front of a computer keyboard, yeah. from when I was like eight. Oh, I know that. <laughs> I mean, like if you want to say, you know, you were, <coughs> you can't say you weren't really, really good at that because you were. That's true. It was, it was one of the things in which I was one of the best in my class and one of the best at, um, in fact, in my class, I was the fastest typist at yeah. all through high school too. Man, your teacher gave you other other things to type for him because you were way faster than he was. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure about that, but um, no well, one really keep you busy when everybody else was learning. You were probably typing yeah, up remember, papers for him. Yeah, I mean, not even so much typing up papers. I mean, that's um, but like doing different activities for sure. Yeah, there was definitely some of that. Yeah, no, I was between like 80 and 120 words a minute, like pretty, pretty consistently. I was over, over a hundred for regular typing. And then my spike speeds for individual tests that, you know, the tests that were really easy that you could kind of, um, you could kind of fake being a faster typist. I could get up to like 120, 125, which was, which was really nice. Um, but there was a kid in my class that had faster, um, twitch responses so for like the jjj ffff test he could get up to like 150 <laughs> um, 
That's great if you want to type JJJFFF. All, all day, every day, yeah. <laughs> well, that was the funniest thing is because when you're a kid, a lot of people don't critically evaluate information. So they, they would look at that and be like, Yeah, it's just, <coughs> well, clearly a he's game. the fastest typist. It's a bit of a game. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Yeah, so other than, other than computer skills where I felt like I had a lot of um, – where I had some sense of superiority, which was sort of the only place I got any self-esteem from – um, it was competition with my brother, um, mm. and that the real the real thing is is that self esteem shouldn't come out, come from being better. I mean, ideally, it would never come from an external source at all. But no. I mean, I mean, it's good to get satisfaction from that. But I mean, no. ideally, your source of thinking about yourself as a worthwhile person shouldn't come from how well you do on a key performance indicator. No. But um, for me, all through my childhood, that's that's how I built my self esteem. That's how it was constructed, and. And to some extent, I feel like there was some unintentional, perhaps, reinforcing of that, of just, um, you know, like, why aren't your grades better? Like, those sorts of things, which every parent says. But when you have that mm. predisposition, it kind of stacks in a very unfortunate sort of way. Mm. So, that's what it is. So, what did... <laughs> that's a bad segue. I was going to say, what did you see your parents do that you never wanted to duplicate? But I feel like that's a bad segue from the story I just told. Um, what did you see your parents do that you felt they did really well? Oh, I think it was the example they set of hard work, um, the generous offering of their work to the community around them, mm. volunteering to help out for all sorts of things mm-hmm. that weren't in any way personally, uh, there was no advantage to them personally. Mm-hmm. They did it to see that the all the various societies and things that they joined were successful. The Cubs that, and Scouts that Frank and I went to didn't fall apart because some people helped and made sure that, you know, things were there for camping and all that sort of thing. They, they mm-hmm. both of them always worked for the community around them quite a bit. And that was a good example. And just the, the hard work they always put into everything they did. My father, as you know, we were talking in the last podcast, had a trucking business. And during the summer, on a Sunday after church, all the families would be coming out at the end. And I can remember Dad looking to some of the other men and saying, what do you say we go down to Spanish banks today? Would you guys be into it? And Mm -hmm. they'd sort of look at their wives and say, you want to take the kids down to Spanish bank? Frank says he'll take us down, so... Say, okay, we'll meet you back here in an hour. Go home, get changed. Because everybody's wearing suits and things. Go right. home, get changed, everything. <coughs> Have some breakfast and get your bathing suits. Put together picnics. I know it was an hour, hour and a half, or whatever. They, they agreed upon a time. And he'd bring a truck up, and everybody pile in the back of the truck. <laughs> and I can, I can remember many times going with Kathy and Frank in the back of these trucks, rumbling along. He would had to pull the tarp across the back. So nobody could see us because it wasn't quite legal to be running people <laughs> in the back. But uh, yeah, sure. all all the f- people in the parish would all be in there, and down mm. to the beach we'd go, and all the parents would look out for all the kids, and there were lots of kids to play with. It was great. We had a great time, and he did that often through through the hotter, better days when there was good weather in the summer. That's it was a common thing he always did, and provided the vehicle, got everybody down, got everybody home again. It was great. 
I mean, it sounds like a good time. So I'm hearing a consistent theme of community and volunteerism and hard work. Yeah, yeah. I do a lot of that um, in my life, too, as you know, being on the board of directors with Metro Vancouver Kink and doing my best to try and better the community that I'm in. Um, It is a lot. um, And I think there is a fine line between volunteering to promote your community and volunteering too much to your own detriment. And I'm sort of trying to find that stride um, where I'm volunteering as much as is really useful with the skills that I have that are, you know, leveraging the skills that I have to volunteer less time that's more useful. So I'm trying to sort of find that, um, that rhythm. And I'm still, you know, Mm -hmm. five years into volunteering with MBK or six years even, I'm, I'm still, um, finding that stride. Hmm. Geez, I guess if you don't, if you don't, if you include all the years I wasn't on the board, it's probably closer to eight years at this point. Mm -hmm. And that's not including St. John Ambulance or Big Brothers. Big Brothers have been going for like 10, 11 years now. Yeah, that's right. It's been been very consistent. Yeah. Yeah, it has been a long time. My latest match, I have to be careful how much I say about it publicly just because I'm not allowed to name names or anything like that. But my latest match um, is going on almost eight years now. That's wow. just that's just the most recent one. I did three years in my other match. So Good. It's it's incredible. You literally get to watch someone grow up from when they're um, – and I suppose this is actually strangely you're, on topic. Um, yeah, you're learning parenting skills. Very much so. Um, you, you put in volunteering with someone um, who's, I believe, between the ages of 7 and 14 is the eligibility – um, but you're allowed to stay matched up to, I think, 18 or 19 until the age of majority. And then mm. they age out of the program. And it's up to you whether you choose to continue your friendship as an adult. But it's no longer monitored by Big Brothers. At least that's how I understand the program to work mm-hmm. here in this municipality. Because it's different in different ones. But, yeah, it's pretty incredible watching someone grow up. I've literally known my latest match for you know, about half of his life, if you think about it, like that's mm. a significant amount of time to sort of be meeting with someone for a couple hours every week. And you really get like a slice and sort of a flavor for their rhythms and their, their friends and their struggles and their life. It's it's the same with children. I mean, children are all totally unique. And when you're, you know, mentoring someone as a big brother, it's the same thing. You have a unique individual that you're dealing with and no two are ever going to be exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you most proud of as a parent? What do you feel like you were sort of successful at that you're really grateful to have had success with? My father's just consulting his notes right now, (laughs) which is not a great sign for this question, but that would be question nine. What are you most proud of in your children? The question you asked was, what are you most proud of in your parenting? So I thought you meant of myself and what I did as parenting. But the way I read your question is, is what are you most proud of about your your children children as a parent? Sure. And that's much easier to answer, to try and answer what I'm proud of about myself. I I don't know. I have a hard time answering that one. That's fair. But I saw all three of you, and the elder two maybe even more so than you uh, at a certain point, because I think they were older and it must have hit them harder. Some of the difficulties that you guys had... I don't want to go into details, but I mean, really... you're welcome to talk about it if you want to. I mean, there was there was a divorce, and that was challenging. Well, even before, long before the divorce, the challenges mm. were there. I mean, mm. there were emotional upheavals and things that were very hard to deal with for small children. Yeah, a lot of blaming and a lot of other things that were going on. Yeah, and I was away a lot, so. 
this is more so for your brother and sister, but mm. they suffered a lot. They went through some really tough times. And you did too, to some extent as well, a little later on. Mm-hmm. But um, it's hard to imagine how tough it was on them. I used to phone home from back east when I was driving truck and they were just crying on the phone. Mm. And I couldn't get anything out of them except mommy's really angry. And right. I didn't know what was wrong. <coughs> and what could you say? You're, you're 4,000, 3,000 miles away. Mm. All you can say is that I'll be a week or two before I can get back. I can't come and give you a hug right now, but I'd like to, but I mm-hmm. can't. Try and be strong and help each other. And your mommy really loves you. She's just upset right now. And that's about all I could say. But I'd go back to my bunk of my truck and just cry. I mean, what can you do for your kids when you're so far away and you know that they're struggling? Yeah. Really, really emotionally being, you know, at the bottom of the the, the emotional sort of arc. Mm-hmm. It definitely has an impact, right? On parent and child. Yeah. But on the children especially. And that's what leads to the answer to your question is mm. I look at Maitre and Mark and yourself and I see reasonably successful individuals who have coped, who have got help where necessary and haven't been afraid to get help if it, if it was necessary and have really come into their own, all of you, and becoming stronger adults and you could have been at the bottom of the heap socially, unable to function, unable to participate in your communities and do the things that you're doing. And all three of you have succeeded rather well, I think. I mean, I'm proud of all of you, really proud. I mean, you've done well. I look at where you started from and all the problems, you know, and especially your... And I, I don't mean to belittle your part, but sure. especially the elder two, the things they had to deal with mm. and how, what a great mom Maitre is and what a decent person Mark is. I mean, yeah, I'm really proud of you guys. And you too, of course. I mean, <laughs> no, no. Uh, Not for sure. I, I, I didn't em- take I emphasize that one, but yeah, which is good because it's way. not intended that way at all. Of course. I'm proud of all three of you a great deal. And I think, yeah, that's the answer to that question, which comes out of all the the preamble but that's where it was going yeah it's a tough question to answer in some ways and i suppose as a parent it can also be a very easy question to answer (laughs) but it's um yeah it's there's a lot there for sure to sort of talk about i'm i'm curious when children reach adulthood if you've given any thought to that idea of when do children reach adulthood we haven't got into the sort of spiritual side of my life and the things I've Mm. done. But the mother at Sriabindu Ashram, who was a huge influence on me, I read somewhere she was answering a question that someone had asked her that was very similar. And she said, you can't tell people what to do and expect them to do exactly what you tell them once they turn about 14. So I think children become independent now every child's different but they become an independent thinker at around 14 15 and i tried to live with that when i was with you guys as a parent and that i wouldn't force you or tell you that you had to do this or that at around that time 14 to 15 i would ask you 
I would offer guidance, but I would never say you must do this or that because it's a waste of time. People don't, mm. at 14, 15, reasonably well-developed young people will find their own way. And they might listen to their parents, but they're going to find their own way. No point in pushing it. So I think that's where the beginnings of adulthood start. Mm. And it may seem young, but I don't think it's that young. I think I think we underestimate young people a lot, really. Even 12, 13, but especially around 14, 15, there is a there is a never large... underestimate their ability to make their own minds up because they're going to make them up anyway. Sure, yeah, that's that's true to a large extent. Teenagers will absolutely choose what they're going to do. Yeah, they'll even tell you that. Yeah, okay, mom, I won't go. <laughs> they'll go <laughs> because course. you know because they're teenagers. Yeah, and it's, they have every right to make their own decisions, make their own mistakes, and the best thing you can do, I think, is. Show them that you have faith that they will make good decisions. If you've brought them up reasonably well, I mean, given them some guidance when they were 9 and 10 and 11, when they were starting to form their personalities into something that was more individualistic in their own mm-hmm. thing, not just a sort of a wide-eyed kid. They became someone of their own. If you've done that well, then... I. As an example, I remember Maitre a couple of times, and one of the hardest things was is from your mother's culture in India. Girls could not do anything by themselves. I mean, they were to stay in the house and not go out. Mm. And Maitre would want to go for a sleepover with her friends, and your mother would say, no way, it can't happen. I'd have to talk to her for a long time and sort of convince her that, you know, it's they're just going to watch horror movies and scream and cover their heads and not watch the TV. And the things that young girls do that they enjoy doing together in a group. And I said, you can't take that away from her. You've got to let her go and experience it. And she's not stupid. She's not going to, you know, do anything that'll harm her in any way. And she did that later when she got older, but that's, that's her own thing. But and another time, I remember her wanting to go to this party, I think in about grade 10 or 11. And there was obviously going to be alcohol there and things would be, you know, lots of music and the whole thing. And mm-hmm. your mother was absolutely determined, no way she's going to that because that's just going to be trouble. And I said, well, she really wants to go. And she did. She was. She would have gone. One way or another, she would have snuck out. She would have gone. So I said to her, no, you can go. I said, your mom's not happy and I'm going to catch it, but you can go. But I said, remember this. If it starts to fall apart and get crazy and you're not comfortable, too much alcohol or, you know, whatever, call me. I don't care if it's one in the morning, if you're staying late there, call me. I'll get up, I'll jump in the car and I'll come and get you. That's really supportive. Yeah. And I said, that's all I can do. So be smart. Enjoy yourself, have fun with your friends, and if it gets crazy, call me and I'll get you. And she did. She called me. It wasn't that late. It was only about 11.30 or so. Hmm. She called me and says, Dad, can you come and get us? These Some of these guys are just really drunk and it's getting crazy. And we're uncomfortable and, you know, she and Rhianne and her friend, come and pick us up. By the time I got there, six of them <laughs> cr- 
<laughs> climbed into the van and I took six girls home that night. Wow. And dropped each one off at their house, made sure they got in safe and then finally went home. And it was just, yeah, you got to trust your kids. You know, they're not stupid and they're, if they make a mistake, they'll learn from it, hopefully. And if they don't make a mistake, they'll learn from it too. Mm-hmm. But you got to let them learn. You can't sort of lock them up. It doesn't mm-hmm. do any good. You'll end up with people who are older and have don't have the experience of making the right decisions. Mm. Or practice trying to make the right decisions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. they have to practice. They have to know. They have to start to be confident that they can make the right decisions. So I thought I'd, I'd ask because I know that if it's something that you'd said about me, I would probably go crazy trying to figure out what the context was. But when you mentioned that, uh, you know, my trait wouldn't do anything to you know, injure herself, but you know, she did that later when she was older. What were you specifically referring to? I just thought that I'd follow up on it and ask. I'm not actually sure what she did because I never forced her to tell me, but she ended up in hospital. Oh, that time. Yeah, I do. Vaguely remember that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. she went to a party and she took something. Sure. And it affected her very badly, and she ended up in hospital. And, and then got better. But we, yeah, yeah I, we I just supported her, the, supported her the best we could. For parents, it's bloody awful. Got you. You don't know what's going to happen. Will she recover or not? Mm-hmm. And the doctor basically said she took something that was probably very unwise. <laughs> Which that's, is fair. That's about all he said. As plenty of teenagers and young adults do at some yep. point. Yeah. And we never blamed her. At least I didn't. I don't know what went on between your mom and your your sister. But yeah. from my point of view, it was, God, thank God she's alive and she's come out of it all right. How did culture play into parenting for you? Like the culture difference between mom and you? Drove me crazy. <laughs> sure, it drove her crazy too. Like yeah. it's quite disparate, different styles. Yeah, I mean... The, the patriarchy in India is still severe, and so girls are expected to be completely subservient and stay at home and not enjoy their lives at all, and that I fought against a lot. Um, and boys are wonderful, of course, <laughs> which I, I didn't fight against, but I mean, sure, yeah, they have to put things in balance and proportion. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a big emphasis in the Indian culture on appearances mm-hmm. and form. Sure. I, and, I certainly noticed that in my interactions with mom. Yeah. And you've been in India as well, so you've seen how it works in society there. Boy, were they upset that my phone was a piece of crap. I was like, I'm not going to carry around a $300 phone. Like, Of course, a $1,500 phone's fine for me. Yeah. Every every boy I ran into wanted to see what my phone was. It was like, oh yeah, they expect you coming from the west to have a, you know, monster phone. They couldn't understand I had a piece of garbage like this. Mm. Where's your real phone? No, that's the only phone I have. You're here for like six months. This is this is your phone? Yeah, this is my phone. Yeah, I can I can see that. But uh... sorry, I I totally took you off track. You were talking about the culture clash and sort of the difference mm. in parenting approaches and the way that girls are treated in India. <coughs> Excuse me. We can we can end it soon too. 
Um, this is okay. sort of the last. Uh, just that I got a real tickle in my throat there. Yeah, no worries. I just figured you only being back for the for the week, you know, and you've been you were sick the week you visited last as well. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But um, culturally, uh, they're just so different the cultures and the importance of respect for adults and for your parents and things so important there and it's not very important here it doesn't <laughs> seem anyway but uh yeah there's many 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 differences and i i live in india now and i enjoy it being there and there are some aspects of it that are need to change and will over time i hope but uh as, there as are a lot of aspects in our culture that aren't good as well. I was just going to say the same thing. That, yeah, there's there's going to be aspects that most of us look at and go, yeah, and well, most, I really hope that Most changes. Indians look at the West and see it as a horrible, horrible mess, and they don't see any problem with India. Right. And most Westerners just Would see it the in the reverse. Thing. Yep. And it's somewhere in between in both cases. Sure. Yeah, that seems very reasonable to me. So with parenting, you tried to find that somewhere in between. Yeah. Yeah. Most of there was a lot of struggle with your mom and me on what was going to happen. And I had to always tried to argue what I thought would be beneficial for the children. Like, I, they, and I'm sure they were growing up more and more, but in their teens for the older two. And then you again, when you became, a, I'm sure mom was also arguing for what she thought was the best for children as well. Yeah. Yeah. I just disagreed. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and you guys were growing up in this culture to live in this culture, and mm -hmm. that's why it was ill-advised, I felt, to force a uh, foreign culture. Mm. Like, if you were growing up in India, you would have been able to handle that a lot better. Right. But being here and seeing, seeing what your friends do and then being forced not to do any of those things would have mm. been really tough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a weird third culture situation because you can't be of either of the two cultures that you're sort of that are sort of in your heritage as a as a mixed race person growing up. You kind of have some mix of the two, and you're kind of left at that hopefully some form of middle ground that that is. Um, well, it's just it's a lot to sort of take in and think about, and it's a lot to sort of grapple with and come to a. I was quite conscious and determined to mix cultures when I got married. It, mm -hmm. I, I very nearly married a Cameroonian woman. Mm -hmm. That was close. <laughs> and I ended up marrying your mother. But I just really wanted to marry outside of my own sort of white Anglo-Saxon background. Mm -hmm. Because I thought genetically it was much sounder in terms of physical and hopefully mental health. And... So I wanted, it's just on a sort of a mental level I wanted to do it. And I think I saw for my children the chance to have twice the richness that a single culture person has. Mm. Twice the sources of inspiration, inspirational stories and fables and tales. And the strength and power of an ancestry. Mm -hmm. The way the Africans see ancestry, which I think is fabulous you know and every time they have a, a gathering they offer libations and things to the to their ancestors because mm -hmm. 
they wouldn't be there if their ancestors weren't there. Mm-hmm. And they, they look up to their ancestors for support because they don't see them as having just, they're there. They're just not there physically and they're there living in them as well. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a nice way. I think a good way of looking at yourself as part of your manifestation of your parents, your grandparents, mm-hmm. your great, all the way back as far as you want to go. I had the most surreal experience of that, mm-hmm. um, where I was lying in bed breathing and I have this, it's good to be breathing, right? I have this, <laughs> um, this, image or this perception in my head of what it sounds like when you breathe as my father. Mm. I can remember um, whether it was family trips. Um, and, and I mean, obviously we all remember our parents snoring at one point or another, but the sound of air moving in and out of your nose was very distinct and earmarked for me. And there was a day I was lying in bed breathing and I went, oh my goodness, that's me. And yeah. it's just like, <laughs> The sound of breathing through my nose sounded like exactly, I just indescribably, it's, it's an, almost an indescribable experience, but it sounded exactly the way your breathing sounded. I just had this moment of like, wow, I really am like an embodiment of being my father's son in this moment. So, And your grandfathers and yeah. your great grandfathers. Yeah. And your, that's what I'm saying all the yeah. way back. And I tell you, as you get older, you get more and more of those moments. Mm-hmm. You look in the mirror and you almost see your bother looking back at you yeah 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 that's what <laughs> i was gonna say something but it's a bit crazy but we'll let it go <laughs> okay um wow that was all the questions i had thank you for answering them all that's it huh yeah that's it that's everything got off reasonably easy that time. <laughs> that's like <laughs> I'll, I'll i'll be characteristically myself and quote the simpsons when um <laughs> Oh, no. Hurricane Nettie, when Ned Flanders is um, throwing a fit, just absolutely furious at everyone and everything. And he's ranting at every individual person that's there. Mm -hmm. And he gets up to Homer, and all it is is this quiet, seething disgust. And he just says, Homer, you are the worst human being I have ever met. And then walks away, and Homer goes, hey, I got off pretty easy. (laughs) Wow. To be compared to Homer in your world, I (laughs) I must be doing something right. Sure. Thanks so much, Dad. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rick. So how was it, Intimates? Did you love something you heard? Or maybe you're upset by something I said? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions. Or you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon, where you can find our Discord server. All of these communities are available on intimatepodcast.com, and I genuinely look forward to speaking with you soon. If you liked it, please consider helping us pay for show costs over at Patreon for as little as $1 per month. It's incredibly helpful. It's just a dollar a month. If you can afford it, we would hugely appreciate having your support. And hey, if that doesn't work for you, I completely understand. You can also help out by going to leave a review on iTunes or other favorite social media platform. Social proof like that helps so much with visibility and audience building. It helps other intimacy and relationship nerds find us. And if any of that just sounds like too much work, you can always do something really simple and it still goes a long way. Something like just tapping share and sending an episode that you liked, maybe a favorite, to a friend or partner, or maybe you can send them something you think they might really like. That's probably more considerate. (laughs) Thanks so much for your time and for your help in keeping us making more of Intimate Interactions. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. The intro music was Driving in the Rain by Timecrawler, and this outro music is Acoustic Blues by Jason Shaw.